I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. We are live out of the uh, Connecticut shelter-in-place winner-take-all studio. Uh, and please message, leave comments on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn if, uh, if you have any comments or questions as, as we continue. So the first topic is, this is now the third day, third consecutive rally for stocks on, on, on the Dow, on the NASDAQ, on Platt. Um, so, I don't know, they, they said this hasn't happened since 1931, a, a rally like this. It would make sense since stocks have literally nosedived uh, in, in, the, in the week or two prior. The question is, is this going to remain the same or are we going to see stocks dip again? And so, you know, the, uh, the analogous period of time that I've looked at is back, not necessarily uh, with the swine flu in 09 period of time, but instead, if we look at SARS, and if we look at SARS here, this was actually in 2003. Some of you may not remember this, uh, but this is the global uh, probable cases of SARS by week starting in November of 2002 through July of 2003. It actually maps somewhat very closely to what we're seeing with coronavirus. And you can see here it, it's spiking right around the week of March 28th or March 21st, um, which is roughly where we are right now. This is a, these are global numbers, okay? Now let's look at QQQ. Let's look at, you know, this is the NASDAQ 100. Um, you know, you see something similar here with the Dow if you, if you analyze that index. But these are, um, you know, these are, you can see here, this is February and March are where these dips are. So this February date is right around Feb 11, Feb 14. And then you have another dip right around March 12th, right? Um, now let's look at the CDC SARS data. That's what this is showing us. It says uh, the probable cases versus suspected cases. Um, so they're kind of using this as a derivative based upon the um, number of people actually tested positive for SARS. But you can see here. So these numbers are a little bit lagged, right? I think SARS started in China as well. And then so you have that lag until it gets to the United States. And, uh, and so you can see here a spike March 14th. And then again around March 31st and April 1st. So this is, I think, a better data set to look at than the global. Because there's that, there's that lag and this is, you know, U.S. stocks predominantly. And then you kind of look at this and you say, okay, well, there is a, a, a huge fall off in stocks in that mid-Feb, which kind of correlates when there, there was you know, a lot of early on onset of activity here with SARS globally. And then in the United States, things started to really have that initial uh, spike in mid-March. And if we go back to this, you can see a very similar um, drop in, uh, in mid-March in the stocks. Now, I don't think that 
we have seen a spike in the United States. I think in New York State, which has more cases than the whole country, where I have had to leave uh, and have been in Connecticut for uh, over two weeks now. Um, and uh, when you look at that data, you know, I think Governor Cuomo says that the cases in the U.S. are going to peak in two weeks, possibly three weeks in New York. And so that means that the other states that are reporting are maybe a week or two or three behind where New York is, presumably, besides maybe like Washington State, uh, which had an early onset and uh, one or two other places. But if we just if we just assume that the peak in the United States is still at least two weeks away, you know, when I look at this data, I think we had here, we already had the equivalent of our mid-February uh, crash. And that happened March 16th. You know, that happened over the past couple of weeks. We're now seeing it rebound at the prospect of the, the country starting to open up, um, at the prospect of the, the stimulus uh, package and, and really the relief package. And um, I think, though, that, that we aren't out of this yet, at least when it comes to the stocks. The stocks are still very emotional. You still have huge swings. Just in the past few days, you've had huge swings upward. But I don't think the volatility is out of the stock market. And I don't think we've seen this peak in the United States. So I think it really only started to happen where you had this second trough, this second uh, crash. Again, these numbers were not nearly as extreme for SARS. Uh, so if you look at the peaks in the valleys here, they're nowhere near the peaks in the valleys that we're seeing today which I think is for a few reasons. One, the level of kind of anxiety and panic around coronavirus relative to SARS is much greater. A and B, I think um, the programmatic trading, the you know algorithmic trading that we have today makes these peaks and troughs much larger um, as a result of that automated trading. So for and then there's other reasons as well. I think the level of media uh, scrutiny and all these kinds of things basically um, put the state of markets into a very emotional period as opposed to looking at the fundamentals. I mean, you're seeing 10, 20% swings on a single stock in a single day. Nothing fundamentally changed for that business, uh, but still you see that volatility. So I don't think the volatility is out. And I still think that we have another, not crash, but we have, we have, we have not hit the bottom in the sense that um, I don't think stocks are going up and are going to continue to go up. I think that the prospect of continued cases in the United States uh, rising day over day and that trend continuing, wow, we are now in second place. Uh, you know, the U.S. likes to win at a lot of things. This is one of those things we don't want to win at. I, fun I fundamentally don't believe that these Chinese numbers are accurate. I think they are not reporting their information correctly, which is a disservice to really the world for that matter. Um, but here, here are the U.S. cases. So just today, this is, uh, yikes, what is today? Thursday, March 26th, we've added 12,600 cases. We're at over 80,000 cases. We will soon surpass China. China's reported numbers, not China's real numbers. Um, and... Uh, you got 37,000 cases in the U.S. 
So yesterday, by comparison, we added 13,000 cases. So we're not done reporting. It's only, you know, it's not even five o'clock here on Thursday. So we have more cases that will come in. I think you're going to continue to see these numbers rise. New York still hasn't hit their peak, let alone the country. So I think you still have a downward cycle in the stocks, uh, which will roughly correlate, maybe not exactly correlate, with the continued rise in cases in the United States and the markets starting to come to the realization that even though we want to open up, how do we open up if we have over 80,000 cases and that number is continuing to grow day over day? Just realistically, how do we open things up and get the economy jump-started despite the stimulus, despite the best intentions to try and get the economy humming again? It's just a really difficult prospect right now. I think the stimulus bill will bring a lot of good things, and I'm going to touch on that in a second. Um, when we look at uh, some some regulation and, and things going on. But first, let's look at the state of startups. We've spoken on every show since we've been on uh, uh, on the you know coronavirus topic the past few episodes here. We've spoken about that startups are in a much worse position than, geez, um, many businesses. I wouldn't say all businesses, but certainly large enterprises, start- startups are way off, are, are way are, are, are in a much worse place. And the reason is not only are they seeing their business uh, deteriorate, but they also generally don't make any money. They're not profitable, which means that they need to fundraise. So they need to be growing the business and fundraising. Now they see a deterioration in the growth and they see the VCs and their their capital resources being are, are drying up as VCs are kind of reassessing strategy. That's really just another word for saying, we're going to wait for this to blow over before we start investing again. It's quite unfortunate. And so there's uh, stories here about layoffs accelerating across Silicon Valley, the variety of different numbers here. VC firm expecting that 80% of startups are going to conduct layoffs as a result of, of the virus um, and just more bad news, right? So we see layoffs happening all over the place. We see Sonder cutting a third of its workforce. We've seen Lyric cut resources you know if you're in these if you're a startup in general you're probably considering layoffs if you're a startup that's in a suboptimal industry like real estate uh you're definitely cutting uh folks unfortunately right now other examples here of uh of what we see going on is so fintech lenders i mean the the despite what the fed is doing to support credit markets those credit markets are going to support the incumbents. The fintech lenders, on the other hand, don't have access to the same resources that big banks do. And so even though the Fed is now trying to support commercial paper, that is very different than what the fintech lenders are having to, uh, to wrestle with here. So meanwhile, the banks, even though they have all this access to credit and support from the Federal Reserve, they're not lending. Right, they've shut that off and are becoming extremely conservative now. Uh, so they get the support, but they aren't really doling out the dollars. Um, so you have just here a number of stories about fintech lenders that people just can't pay. Businesses can't pay. They've now put this credit out. They they're not getting these loans paid off. What do they do? They are frozen basically. So uh, a lot of these fintech lenders are in a very tough spot. And, um, the, you know, the stories just kind of go on and on and on. 
Again, we've spoken that I think the large fintechs will be able to make it through this. Uh, And this article says here, non-bank lenders that will likely feel the pain are these larger players. But again, they're going to be able to weather the storm. It's really the small to mid-sized fintech lenders that that, um, are going to have a much tougher job during this transitionary period. Now, a couple of good examples of regulation. Let's look at kind of regulation done right. Ironically, I'm going to France. So France here is announcing $4.3 billion to support startups. I love this. I think this is great. Now, the stimulus bill, the U.S. stimulus bill or relief bill, it hasn't been passed yet, but there are some measures in France's plan that echo the, the U.S. plan. But the U.S. plan does not have the startup-specific support here that, that France is contemplating. So let me break this down because I think it's really interesting. I've heard the U.K. might be considering something similar to this. The one caveat that I will provide in all of this is these plans sound great. But literally, startups operate. Startups already operated on accelerated time cycles than big companies, right? A month for a startup is like a year for a big company, right? A month for a big company is like a few hours for a startup at the pace that these that these businesses operate in terms of you know making product changes, cash flow, and so on and so forth. So there is such huge urgency in the startup community. You already see them making layoffs, right? They need to act quickly. That's my one caveat as as we talk about the plan. There needs to be urgent execution. You could have the best plan, but if it takes you weeks and weeks and weeks to implement it, it doesn't matter. The damage is already done. So the French government is mobilizing $320 billion in liquidity support, which will make it easier to get a loan as the government is backing loans. So the startups and every business would have access to this hopefully facilitated lending you know, presumably this would be somewhat similar to what the uh, government, U.S. government is doing via the through the SBA, the Small Business Administration, for disaster relief loans and so on and so forth. So there are those, right? But they have gone a few steps further for startups. For startups that were in the process of raising a new funding round, will be able to raise a bridge round. This group is also putting $86 million, not a huge bunch of money, on the table. And, and then basically they're subsidizing that. So, so the French government's putting up $86 million to invest in startups, and then private investors will match that with another $86 million. So theoretically, you know, the French government is, is helping to subsidize that investment and go in 50-50 with VC firms on some of these fundraisings. It's nice. It's not a ton of money, but it's a nice gesture. Then they have access to the uh, borrowing capabilities. Now, this is the key one here. This is a really big one. For startups, they can borrow as much as two years of payroll for employees based in France or 25% of annual revenue, whichever is higher. They put peg this at about $2.2 billion. This is a big deal. A big, 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 big deal. If you can now get a loan for two years worth of your payroll, right? This storm shall pass. We're going to get through the coronavirus. It's just a question of how long are we in this tumultuous period of time? How quickly can things bounce back? But if you can get a loan for your payroll for two years, that solves a lot of issues for startups. A lot of issues. Um, then they have things around startups can get tax returns and you know can basically get access to their 
the the money that the government is withholding faster uh and um and things like that but but this payroll thing is is really big there is supposed to be some payroll covering mechanisms in the you know relief bill going through the US Congress right now um but it isn't there isn't anything here extra that's specifically carved out for startups right so startups are just kind of lumped into the same thing as all small businesses but i do like that france and it, uh presumably the uk are looking at startup specific measures around uh funding payroll um you know liquidity measures and these kinds of things to 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 try and support that industry i think this is a great example another good example of regulation done right is in singapore so last week i spoke about how in the us from the privacy standpoint the whole flow of conversation and data is in the wrong direction it's it's from big us tech monopolies providing data to the government instead of the other way around instead of the government providing data to us tech companies um and this was specifically in regard to the us government requesting google and apple and facebook to share their location data with the us government so the us government could do a better job at tracking uh, if people had been in high risk areas to have contracted coronavirus or if they were following the um shelter in place rules the Singaporean government launched an app. Okay, this is the government launching an app in weeks, not months. The app is called Trace Together. It works by exchanging short-distance Bluetooth signals with other users of the app, giving officials a database to track potential uh, coronavirus carriers. The app is being offered voluntarily. So they are saying opt-in rather than you don't have any ability to opt in or opt out and just the tech companies are giving this data and violating our privacy rights. It's saying opt in. This is what actually literally what I was suggesting. Why doesn't the US government provide data about hotspots, areas of high risk and allow a, a Google, a Facebook, an Apple to spin up an app that, that users can opt in that they can use to see, have I been exposed and, um, and get better knowledge around location and tracking and these kinds of things. So I think this is a really great example of the uh, Singaporean government taking the initiative, allowing users to opt in, and ultimately it's a much faster path to get this done. Well, this is much faster than the U.S. government could ever do, um, but it's a really, I think, conceptual difference in how, say, in this case, the Singaporean government and the U.S. government think about uh, privacy, where the U.S. government default is to say, give me all the data. Let me go figure out what to do with it, which A, has privacy issues and B, huge execution risk because there's no way they're going to get an app out in a matter of weeks. It's just not going to happen. Here, you have the completely other way where it's opt-in and done by the government. Great example here of, uh, of Singapore taking the initiative on this. Um, so next topic is what are the large platforms doing uh, and, and what's going on in that arena? So. A few interesting deal points here. This article is from late Feb. Grab, which is basically like Uber in Southeast Asia, Singapore, other parts of you know Indonesia, raising eight hundred fifty million dollars. You would think, oh, that's perfect timing. Really, uh, you know, right, right before 
things started to get out of hand. The thing to remember, though, is that coronavirus was already going on in February, right? As a known issue. Um, it started in December in China and really started to spread quickly in January. Um, and, uh, and so it was a known issue. They raised $850 million despite all of that happening. And then this article talks about possible merger conversations with Gojek, uh, which is their competitor. I think they started out of Indonesia. They were very popular by, by using those kind of like motorbikes or, um, Cruikshank, you know, like three wheeler bikes, which are very popular in Indonesia. I think that was how kind of how they started. Anyway, that didn't happen. What did happen is Gojek raised $1.2 billion. These are U.S. dollars uh, in funding just last week. A very positive sign if, if you're in Southeast Asia that these mega deals are still happening, that these companies that are not profitable are still able to raise mega rounds of capital despite what's happening with the virus. Um, certainly, it's a very known entity there, and, and people understand that it's going to have a, a long-lasting impact. and downside impact on uh, on a number of things ride sharing and we've seen has been hugely hit in the united states um, but despite all of that you see these massive rounds happening and i'd say that's a very positive sign for the south southeast asian or asian tech startups that that maybe you know not all of the capital has been frozen now these are mega deals so these investors are going to be looking at a very different kind of deal than um, than the earlier stage tech investors, A. And B, presumably these deals usually close weeks in advance to the deal being announced. So I don't know if this deal literally just closed and was leaked last week or if it closed a number of weeks ago and is now being announced. That's not clear. But still, nonetheless, considering this was starting in China in December, you know, these deals happened during the period of coronavirus. So it's a very positive sign that you're not seeing everything freeze up, that you're still seeing uh, unprofitable, large tech startups get big rounds of funding to continue down that path. It'll be very interesting to see how conservative they are with these funds as compared to maybe how they would have used these funds six months ago. Um, so that's an interesting sign, very positive sign, I would say. Uber Eats. This article says here, Uber Eats U.S. sales surged 10, 10% last week. Okay, Uber Eats is doing over $12 billion in GMV. That means they're doing over a billion dollars a month in GMV just in Uber Eats. That means they had tens of millions of dollars in increased throughput just uh, in the past week. So this is a, a, re a remarkable figure to see how these, uh, you know, the delivery model is, is being embraced. As we see restaurants not being able to have pass, you know, customers come inside uh, and the power of the platform conglomerate where now Uber, Uber ride sharing is obviously hurting. Lyft is obviously hurting, but Lyft has no alternative. They don't have any eats business. This shows you kind of the diversification that comes with that platform conglomerate status where Uber is much better prepared to handle this than Lyft is now. The ironic thing is the stock market basically has not paid one iota to that fact. And Uber and Lyft stocks have basically moved exactly in line with one another. Uber goes up, Lyft goes up. Uber goes down, Lyft goes down. It frankly doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but that's how the stocks, the stocks have almost exactly 
trace one another, which doesn't make any sense. But fundamentally, again, that shows you just the the disconnect between fundamentals and kind of this emotional volatility in the stock market. They're two very different beasts right now. On the Airbnb front, no bueno. Um, their business has completely dried up. They have they are absolutely the large dominant uh, tech monopoly for short-term rentals. Problem is, they really haven't made the jump to platform conglomerate status. They've kind of done the experiences thing a little bit, which I think is uh, working okay for them. But their whole business is in short-term rentals. And that obviously has fallen off like a brick. And um, what they're seeing now is their producers, the homeowners that were doing short-term rentals, are fleeing to other platforms that offer longer-term rentals, BRBO, HomeAway, Zillow, basically all of their competitors that were doing longer-term rentals, right? Booking.com. And now that inventory is going away from Airbnb, which only does short-term. And the question there is, how much of that inventory is Airbnb going to be able to reclaim in three or six or nine months from now, right? As these other competitors, which are well-funded, these are now, many of them are platform conglomerates like a booking uh, or an Expedia is also in plat. Expedia and, and booking are both in plat. So as they get their hooks into this supply, they also offer short-term rentals. It, 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 it's just going to be much harder for Airbnb to reattract and regain that same level of loyalty um, that they had pre this pandemic. So this is really not good news for Airbnb. Airbnb had pushed off going public. They could have gone public in 2019. There's a lot of rumors that they would have gone public in 2019. They decided to wait. And now it doesn't, I mean, there were rumors that they were going to go public this year. We thought they were, they were going to go public this year. That's obviously not happening. They have other problems now where they have employees that have options that are supposed to vest. And, and so basically, <clears throat> if they don't go public this year, those options are going to expire, which means the employees aren't going to be able to capture that value. So then what is it now? You know, now you have all these kinds of employee personnel problems where you had these people that were expecting to be able to exit these shares and have been working there long term to, to have the shares vest. Now, what do they do? So there's a lot of issues at Airbnb. And, you know, I think one of the lessons learned is to try and get that liquidity when you can, right? They, they had multiple opportunities to go public, um, even though they were not, not profitable, but they were break even. They could have been profitable if they wanted to kind of rein in the belt a little bit, but they wanted to continue trudging forward full speed ahead, decide to push off the IPO. And yikes, this is not a fun place to be for them right now. Facebook, however, one of the true mega tech monopoly platforms, uh, doesn't seem to be losing much steam here. Their stock really didn't go down, maybe maybe 20% at the worst case. We are definitely seeing, I think Twitter was re reporting a 20% a drop in ad revenue in March projected, uh, as there are a lot of small businesses that are advertising on these content platforms like Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. So we're definitely, they definitely are going to see a revenue dip, but their stock really has been very strong, very strong balance sheet. A uh, very dominant position, you know, net net, they're going to be okay now. And they're actually looking here. This is just this week to take a material stake in Geo, 
Now, Reliance Geo, if you haven't heard of it, um, is run by Mukesh Ambani, one of the richest people in the world. He might be the richest person in Asia right now. And his business, Reliance, um, has owned a number of traditional traditional businesses like in construction and very kind of industrial businesses. Over the past few years, he started to dump tens of billions of dollars into launching a telecom business called Reliance Geo. This guy will make presentations saying, we're going to become a platform business. The guy loves platform businesses and he is very much so trying to turn Geo and, and, and capture some network effects. Now, Geo is a telecom business it's not a platform business, but what they're trying to do on the on top of Geo is spin off other platforms like getting into shopping and trying to compete with Amazon and shopping in India. And so they're doing M&A to try and use now that they have a very dominant telecom business, say, what are some platform businesses that I can spin up on top of my massive user base, my massive install base, whether in the, in the areas of product marketplaces like shopping or content platforms. And now we see this Facebook potential deal here where I'm sure that's going to revolve around content platforms and social networks. And I'm sure going to revolve around Facebook and Geo having a much tighter alliance, you know, having uh, using the Geo install base to help populate Facebook's expansion into India. This article touches here where Facebook has tried other initiatives called Free Basics in India, which they tried and failed. So Facebook has tried to make Many businesses uh, scale in India, and it looks like there could be um, an interesting partnership here in these emerging markets. And, you know, on past episodes on the show, we've spoken about that what you really see in places like India and other emerging markets are this is really where the large US tech monopolies and the large Chinese tech monopolies battle it out. And so we've seen this in India here with ByteDance. And TikTok getting a lot of traction and other investments. You've seen uh, Alibaba make investments into Paytm, a very dominant payment platform in India. So you see a lot of this happening. Now, I think this is another chapter in the story. I can see a lot of good synergies here for these two to partner up. Makesh loves platforms, and now he's going to get one of the best platform companies to do some, I think, very interesting joint ventures or partnerships here that they could probably co-launch together or something of the sort. So this, I think, could be very interesting. And um, and really, you know, I tip my hat to Makesh and the, the bets that they've made to launch these completely new businesses to now embrace platform models, to try and do their own platform models, primarily through M&A. But now here, through some potential JV action from what we're seeing with Facebook, I think this could be very interesting. Um, both for Facebook and for Reliance and, and Reliance Geo. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. As you can see, there's a lot of commotion, a lot of hardship going on with coronavirus. We're going to get through this. We're not through the thick of it yet, but we will get through this. And um, also, I think another bright spot is that not everything has come to a complete halt. We are still seeing some movement. Some things are still carrying forward. There still is a lot of opportunity. And coming out of this pandemic, there's actually going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity as we continue to see in private equity and other areas where there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of opportunity during and coming out of uh, this horrible period of time that we almost go through. But uh, let's stick together. We'll get through it together. 
and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us.